So good to be together worshiping. I see a first-time visitor in the back there, a baby with the bunches. Is that right? Yes. Good job. Good job, parents. All right. Um, sorry if I don't do that for every baby. There's a lot, okay? But I just saw them, and I was like, yes. Um, we're looking this morning in Acts chapter 4. Uh, Acts chapter 4. Uh, we're going to be in verses 23 through 31 this morning, continuing in this sermon series as we have been studying the book of Acts and we have been going through it verse by verse. And it's been great. It's been a great study. I love the book of Acts. And so this morning, we're looking at a passage that tells us about a time when the first Christians, the early church, were afraid and they responded to that by praying. This is like the first prayer gathering, maybe, that we have the actual content of their prayer. And so this is a very important passage. We're talking this morning about prayer. The title of the message is, When the Church Prays. When the Church Prays. So this passage, as we'll read it in a moment, the structure of it, just to know kind of what we have here in front of us, In the first verse, um, I think that's verse 23, Peter and John are released from jail or prison and they come to their uh, fellow Christians and they say, listen, we're out. It's good to be out. And they threatened us if we teach in the name of Christ anymore, we're going to like get arrested or die. So the first part is the report. And the second part is the bulk of this passage this morning, which is the prayer. They all have a time of prayer together about this threat, and they pray for boldness. And then at the end, the sort of third part or movement of this passage is the response to their prayer, God's answer to their prayer, just what happens after they pray. And so that's, if you kind of want to understand the framework of this passage, that is what we have in front of us. Um, You know, at the end of the passage, it says that the room shakes, after their prayer. It's cool. And it says that they start to have such great boldness after their prayer too. And so for an outline this morning, what what I want to kind of press into with this passage is this phrase or this sort of heading, prayer that shakes the room and unleashes boldness. Okay? Now, there are going to be five characteristics of prayer that shakes the room and unleashes boldness in our lives as Christians, okay? Let me just say a quick disclaimer. Because we're talking about prayer, the first thing I want to say is, I just want to put it out there, prayer's hard, okay? Prayer's hard. Um, In some ways, it's not hard, right? It's like, oh, yeah, like pray. When you're desperate, pray. I mean, we all pray. Every person prays. You know, atheists pray in a foxhole, like, Everyone prays. Pray. In some ways, it's simple. But in some ways, it's really hard. It's hard to be good at prayer by yourself. Uh, It's really hard to pray in front of people. Um, It's hard to pray as a church and have a good plan for your church to pray. These things are challenges. Um, It's hard to pray in marriage. I, you know, make that commitment. We're going to pray every day as a married couple, and immediately it gets hard. It's hard. Prayer's hard. 
And so I say that up front because I just want you to know that I know that I'm not up here, you know, ready to just sort of talk down to you all on prayer. I'm preaching to myself. Thankfully, the messages at our church are not the pastor's expertise. They are just studying God's word together. Okay, so prayer is hard. The second thing I want to say as a disclaimer is that, you know, I just told you, I want to give you five characteristics this morning. And, and it's because they're there. Like, this passage really has that content. But I'm afraid to give five characteristics of prayer that shakes the room and unleashes boldness, partly because it feels a little formulaic. Does that make sense? Like, the prayers go up and the blessings come down. Like, just punch in your pen the five characteristics of prayer that shakes the room and unleashes boldness, and you will have those things. And I'm hesitant always to give a sermon like that because I just I don't think it really works like that. And I think that you know that too. However, as much as we're reticent to sort of be formulaic, we have to be careful that we don't go too far with that pushback because we do need to be instructed in how to pray. And there are tried and true, and in our case this morning, biblical prescriptive ways that we should pray. So I say all that as a setup. Let me just read Acts 4, 23 to 31, title of the message, When the Church Prays. And I'm going to read the passage, and then we're going to go through these five characteristics. Okay, here we go. Verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Lord, we come before you this morning. How can we not begin this time of studying your word with prayer? With recognizing, Lord, that we... Apart from the help of your Holy Spirit, we'll walk out of this place, even if we pay attention the entire sermon perfectly, we will walk out of this place if you do not help us unchanged. And so, Lord, we ask that you would speak to our hearts, that you would change our minds, that you would form us to be more like Christ. 
and that we would grow in prayer, and that we would be a praying church, and that we would be praying families, and that we would grow, Lord, in our communion with you, which is what prayer is. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When the church prays. So this morning, we are going to, as I said, look at these five characteristics of prayer that shakes the room and unleashes boldness in our lives. And so the first one is prayer that unifies God's people. Prayer that unifies God's people. You can see all five points here if you want to go really fast and go ahead, but we'll go to the next slide, which is the first point. There you go. Sorry. Um, Prayer that unifies God's people. Verse 23. So when they were released, and that's John and Peter, they had been arrested for, for preaching in Jerusalem. And we've been studying Acts, and so if you've been here, you know, but they were arrested, and they were sort of, you know, interviewed by the rulers, and they were warned and threatened and released. And it says, when they were released, that's where we pick up, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. Okay, a couple things real quick. The, the church has had a lot of favor so far. Like they saw 2,000 people come to believe in Jesus on the day of Pentecost, and they all got baptized, and then 3,000 more at Solomon's uh, colonnade in Jerusalem like a few days later, and they're really growing, and things are going good. Then Peter and John get arrested, and the rest of the Christians in the church, they don't know what the threats that have been given to Peter and John are yet, so they're now delivering that. So two people know that all is not awesome. And in verse 23, the rest of the Christians now know. Oh, the time of favor, and everybody's just, woo, we're excited to have Christians here. That's over now. Peter and John share that with everyone. They say, listen, it's serious. Our lives are at risk. And so they share that. It's interesting in verse 23, do you see it says when they were released, they went to their friends. Do you see that? They went to... In the Greek, it literally is they went to their own. They went to their own. It's the same word, actually, that's used in Acts 2 when it says that people were hearing the um, apostles on the day of Pentecost speaking about the mighty wonders of God in, here's the word, their own language. It's the same word. They went to their own It's the same word in Acts 20 that speaks of the blood of Christ. He shed his own blood. And this actually is something we could go really quickly past, but I wanted to stop and look at it because John and Peter were released from jail and they went to, in the original, it says their own. And it's translated in the ESV, their friends. They went to their people. Who, are, who do you refer to when you say, I got to go, I got to go get with my people? I've got to go share this with my own right now. It's just, just really, this is an underutilized and undertaught passage for the importance of us being so unified through the gospel of Jesus Christ that we begin to even see our brothers and sisters in Christ as our primary family, our own. It's good. 
Be part of Christian community in such a way that your brothers and sisters in Christ increasingly become your own, become really your friends. And that's more than getting a a bulletin and a handshake on the way in the church, isn't it? So it says here, you know, that they prayed. Do you see it? It says they responded in prayer, and it says they prayed with, do you see it there? One voice. And so, again, prayer that shakes the room and unleashes boldness is prayer that unifies God's people. One voice. You could say corporate prayer. (laughs) One time I brought one of my family members that's not saved to church, and someone up on stage said, like, we're going to have a time of corporate prayer. And and on the way home from church, uh, my, my family member was like, that's why I don't like church. It's so corporate. And I was just like, gosh, you don't even understand what the word means. Like, it, like, it, it doesn't, it refers to together. It refers to not by yourself, but all together, incorporated. We're together. So corporate prayer, one voice. What divides the world should not divide the church. We're together. We're our own with one another. We have a crisis. We pray together. We are friends. One voice. First Timothy says, First of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Prayer that unifies God's people is important. And you think about it. When we all pray together with one voice, how powerful that is. It is powerful. You know, sometimes I think we just overcomplicate it. Like, God is our Father in heaven if we are in Christ. And and if you're a parent, you know, like if one of your kids is bent out of shape and wants something and they're like, we should have dessert tonight, you can can handle that. You're like, no, just get over it. If all of your kids come to you and they're organized and they're on the same page and they address you reverently, and they ask for something that is in accordance with your will, what kind of parent are you that would just be like, sorry, even though you guys got it all together and asked all together, I still just know. God is our Father. It blesses his heart when we pray with one voice as the people of God. So prayer that shakes the room and unleashes boldness is prayer that unifies God's people. We will be having in January again this year 21 days of prayer as a church. And I just mentioned that now, more info to come on that, but that'll be an opportunity for us as a church to grow together in prayer. Before I move on to the second point, which I'm about to do, let's not miss one thing. And that thing is is that their first response to hearing of the threats from Peter and John is what? Prayer. It's the first thing they do. They all pray together. And I know that's convicting because it's like, man, I like if I get sick, I, I don't pray until I'm on antibiotics. I've gone to urgent care. Like I've called 10 people to get sympathy. And then, yeah, prayer. Like, so, you know, like we could just give, get so guilty right now. But I'm just saying, I think it's inspiring to see these first Christians and how they had a reflex 
of believing that God could do something about their situation. So prayer that shakes the room and unleashes boldness. Number two is prayer that recognizes God's authority. Prayer that recognizes God's authority. Verse 24. And when they heard it, that's the threats that they heard about, they lifted their voices together to God, and they said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. That's, that's how you start a prayer. I mean, the, 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 the title Sovereign Lord is literally the word despot. And in, in, in our day, that means like a cruel dictator, but it's, it's, it's where we get that word from. It literally would be defined as one with legal control and authority. So what the disciples are doing here is they are saying, we were just threatened by the authorities. We were just told not to speak in the name of Christ. We were just threatened. We were just threatened. Our lives were threatened. And then they say, but now let's appeal to the supervisor. Let's escalate the situation. Let's talk to the actual sovereign Lord, the one with legal control and authority. We believe that disciples are saying this. We really believe that God is sovereign. They also include in their prayer the truth that the God of Christianity, their God, Jesus Christ, is the creator God. He's the one true God. They are not, in their view, worshiping a territorial deity, the God of just Israel, right? Like, no. And then there's like the God of Babylon, of Assyria, of China, of India. No. They're like, no, we believe the Lord is sovereign in that he's the creator of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. Why is this so important? It's pretty simple, really. Big problems, bigger God. They're facing serious threats from the so-called authorities. In the early Christians, they had an anchor that went deep into the character of God. This character of God was made known to them by the word of God. These attributes of God that they choose to include in the introduction of their prayer directly address the feelings they were feeling of fear, of anxiety, of not having control of powerlessness, and yet it comforted them, and they knew it would, which is why they chose to reflect on it, that God is sovereign, that he has total authority, that he created all things. Just a quick side note. For the persecuted church, which now in Acts is the church, for the persecuted church, Topics like the sovereignty of God and topics like predestination, which we're going to see that word in verse 27, they were not just mere energized debates that were philosophical and theological in nature about how much free will people have. No. 
Rather, the sovereignty of God to the persecuted church was the rock-solid foundation upon which they stood firm with boldness, perseverance, and courage in the midst of the battering storms of opposition from the world. Big problems, bigger God. Proverbs 29, fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Prayer that shakes the room and unleashes boldness looks these ways. Prayer that unifies God's people. Prayer that recognizes God's authority. And now number three, prayer that is informed by God's word. Verse 25 to 26. Look at verse 25. It says, Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. The early Christians are in this moment, remember, we're looking in on their prayer, and they were in this moment praying, eyes closed, praying, I don't know what it looked like, they're praying, and they're quoting in their prayer from Psalm chapter 2, Psalms 2. They decided it would be fitting to quote Psalm 2 in their prayer back to God. God, you spoke this in Psalm 2 through David by the Holy Spirit a thousand years before, And we find it fitting to say some of that back to you in this moment. That's what they're doing. Just a quick comment here. In the book of Acts so far, we have seen a lot of Old Testament. In fact, I want to just show you quickly as a recap. Psalm 69 in chapter 1. Psalm 109 in chapter 1. Joel 2 in chapter 2, Psalm 16 in chapter 2, Psalm 110 in chapter 2, Deuteronomy 18 in chapter 3, Genesis 12 in chapter 3, and now Psalm 2 in chapter 4. So so the early church, they they were energized about the Old Testament and about how the promises of God were being fulfilled through Jesus Christ, and they were burdened to demonstrate this. And so here they are praying God's word, Psalm 2. Now, what is the point here? Prayer that is informed by God's word. Let me, let me clarify something. I don't think the point is that you need to pray right, okay? Get some Bible in your prayer. You need to pray more correctly by quoting scripture in your prayer. That's not the point. I mean, that would help, <laughs> for sure. But I think what we're seeing here, if you really step back from it and think about it, we're seeing that these authentic disciples had a genuine relationship with God. And prayer was communion with God. The interplay is God speaks by his word. They pray back to him. Their prayer is filled with his word. He answers their prayer. It's a relationship. I was helped by 
A pastor, Tim Keller, he gives this helpful illustration here. He says, if someone talks to you and they tell you some important things, and then you respond with just your needs and absolutely zero acknowledgement or reference to what they just shared with you, is that a good relationship? And so I think the point is, is that God has spoken. He's revealed himself, his character, his will, his plan of salvation, all through his word. He's spoken. And when we pray, we're communing with him. And so to reference or acknowledge his word and what he said to us is fitting as it shows that we have a real relationship with God. Prayer that shakes the room and unleashes boldness is prayer that unifies God's people. It's prayer that recognizes God's authority. He is sovereign. He is creator. It's prayer that is informed by God's word. And it is prayer that sees God's hand. Verse 27. For truly, in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Remember that right there. That If you're underlining or something, underline peoples of Israel. Verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So what's happening here between verse 27 and 28, which we're looking at right now, and the previous verse, which was verse 25 and 26, which was what? It was the, what was it? It was the quotation of Psalm 2, right? So Psalm 2, they just prayed it out. They prayed out Psalm 2. And then in verses 27 and 28, they're still praying, but they are now connecting what was said in Psalm 2 with what has happened in their day. Does this make sense? They are rightly observing the hand of God in their circumstances. It's actually beautiful. It's beautiful symmetry. Psalm 2 is here, and what they say has taken place in Jerusalem is here. It's like the wings of a butterfly, okay? They're exactly the same. I know that's cheesy, but it just really works for us, okay? So beautiful symmetry. Psalm 2, 1000 BC, speaks of the Gentiles, speaks of the people, speaks of kings, speaks of rulers, speaks of all of these forces working and conspiring against the Lord's anointed a thousand years prior. And the disciples, the Christians in the early church, as they're praying, they say, oh Lord, in Jerusalem, in our day, in 33 AD, in our day, the Gentiles, the peoples, and here's why I told you to underline peoples, because they, in their prayer, they flip it. You know when they were reading Psalm 2 thousands of years earlier, when they said the peoples, they were thinking like the dirty, filthy Gentiles. But here... Peter and John and those Christians, they label the peoples as the peoples of Israel who have turned against their own Messiah. That's just like a free sort of Bible nerdy thing, okay? But the kings, and you have King Herod, 
the rulers, and you have Pontius Pilate, the Lord's anointed, and you have the holy servant, Jesus. It's like they're basically praying and they're saying, Lord, we see your hand. We see that this was your predestined plan. The word predestined, it actually means destined pre, all right? It means determined beforehand. God, we see your hand. We see your predestined plan. We see you at work. Here's what they are in effect saying. Here's their logic. It's a two-point logic. One, two. Here it is. Number one, the arrest and crucifixion of Jesus was dark, wrong, evil, and involved the actions of wicked and evil people. Yet, it was clearly God's hand at work. It was clearly his predestined plan. And while dark, it brought about glory and good and resurrection and salvation and joy. That's point one. Point two is this. Therefore, these dark, wrong, and evil threats facing our church today from wicked and evil people also must be in some way the work of God's hand in his predestined plan. And we will choose to trust God in our prayer. Prayer that sees God's hand. Fifth, prayer that wants God's will. Prayer that wants God's will. Verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. You know what's amazing about their prayer? It's not, it's not just amazing that they prayed. I mean, because like that's convicting. Their first reaction was to pray. Great. I just want to grow toward that right now. But also... What was amazing about their prayer was that they did not ask in their prayer for protection. They did not ask for deliverance. They did not ask for a way to avoid. It's so inspiring. What did they ask for? They asked just for boldness in the face of these trials. Here's a quote, Dr. Ben Witherington in the Acts of the Apostles, a book, a commentary. He says, the response of the apostles to persecution is prayer, not for relief or deliverance from persecution, but for boldness and power to continue to proclaim the word even in the midst of such adversity. It's so inspiring. Now, Friends, they prayed for God to be with them and help them and continue to give them strength through the trial, not release from the trial. But let me say this, it's okay to pray 
for deliverance and protection and peace too. It is. It's okay. It's not wrong. They probably did also pray for those things. But the Holy Spirit, through the pen of Luke, chose not to include that, but chose to include this, to challenge, encourage, and inspire us. And so we should be inspired and challenged and encouraged by it. You know what, though? If they had prayed for peace, for deliverance, for a hedge of protection, for whatever, they could not know for sure if those things would actually be God's will. They could say, Lord, if it's your will, please protect us, deliver us, give us peace, take this away. They could do that. But what they know is God's will and what their hearts most want is God's will. And that's the point. Prayer that wants God's will, what they know is God's will for their lives is that they would continue to be bold witnesses for the gospel of Jesus Christ to the dying world around them. And so that's their prayer. God, just give us boldness to do what we know is your will. It's cool. So as we kind of wind down and come to the end here, it's important that we learn about prayer from this passage. I really do think that's, that's the intent for the early church and then for Fellowship Raleigh. And yeah, they prayed. But it's not really the prayer that's the game changer in the end. It's the one to whom they prayed. It's the one who makes his presence known and felt when they prayed that really changes things. And that's exactly what we see in the last verse. It says, you saw it in verse 31, and when they had prayed, the place in which they gathered together was shaken. What does that mean? In the Bible, when God shows up, there are earthquakes. There's an, you know, in Isaiah 6, verse 4, it says, And the foundations and the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. God is glorious. He's enormous. He's huge. He's powerful. When his presence is made manifest, things get wobbly. At the crucifixion, at the resurrection, there were earthquakes. Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. And they were filled, verse 31 continues, with the Holy Spirit, and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. What's amazing is that the earthquake, they were shaking from the threats of the rulers. They then prayed to the sovereign Lord and there was an actual earthquake. Their house was shaken, yet they were no longer shaken. Church father John Chrysostom says in his homily on this passage, the place was shaken and that made them all the more unshaken. Prayer that shakes the room and unleashes boldness is prayer to Jesus Christ. And when he 
makes his presence known in our lives, everything changes. Let's close in prayer now.